Oh, dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your servant, David. We thank you for his um, experience of your salvation. And we look to you as we look to the Psalms. And as we hear his testimony through the Psalms, Lord, we ask that you would bring hope to us, no matter what our circumstances are today. Thank you, Lord, that you are victorious through Jesus. So we ask that you would bless this time um, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as some of you might know, if you've been tracking, you'll know that I've been looking at, and I will continue to look at for probably, I think it's like another four weeks. So, you know, feel free to like go do something else. Come, I'll still be here teaching on the Psalms. Um, but I've been looking at different episodes in the life of King David, and there are 14 Psalms that have a title that refers specifically to one of the episodes in David's life. And so, as you know, David was called, upon his death, it says in 2 Samuel, that he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. So we know not just in the Psalms by their titles that he was um, writing Psalms or that he was um, that he was commissioning other people to write psalms on his behalf, but um, he, he was the sweet psalmist, and that's what the psalms say, and that's what 2 Samuel says, which is great to have that double, um, du- double testimony to this gift of his. And actually, one of the you know, fun facts that I've said in earlier days is that when we think, you know, earlier classes, we think about the, um, the laws for how to worship in ancient Israel. And if you remember, during the Pentateuch, and um, Genesis, Exodus, but it's really in Exodus, Leviticus. Um, You hear and then you hear again in Deuteronomy some of the rules surrounding the worship of God, how he wants them to worship him in the tabernacle, and then that was translated into the temple. What that means as far as what kind of sacrifice do you offer when and why and who does it and how do they do it, all of that is listed very specifically there. But what we understand happened under King David, it wasn't until the temple was back in, or it wasn't until the Ark of the Covenant was back in Jerusalem under David's reign. Um, and then during that time, he began to say, well, okay, if this is how we sacrifice stuff, then we're going to set some rules for what we sing, who sings it, and um, what it sounds like, and how do we sing it. So he set up all of these rules about that. So we know that we can trace that back to him. So he was definitely a musical gentleman. Um, and we see that he learned his music while he was a shepherd caring for the sheep. He probably played his lyre out there in the fields while he, um, while he brought the sheep to pasture. It was a way of calling the sheep and letting them know um, they would hear the song of their shepherd, and that's how they knew who to follow. Um, so if you had sheep from many flocks all mingled together, all the shepherd would have to do would be to play his ditty, and all of his sheep would line right up. So how interesting that David was a musician. So we know he was a musician. And as he began to get popular in in Israel, first he was anointed by Samuel, the the prophet. The reason why he was anointed, does anybody remember? It was because there had been a former king, former Saul, and Saul was disobedient to the Lord. He specifically disobeyed the Lord, and so the Lord rejected him as king over Israel. So we enter into this time period, um, and I've marked it on your outline, that there is this time period of about, um, I guess that's 17 chapters, where um, Saul is still king, but we know that the Lord has rejected him, and the Lord anointed David. And so there's, um, Saul is so insecure about his place as king, he knows that this young usurper has been anointed Um, And so out of jealousy and out of fear, Saul tries to kill David no less than 10 different times. 
it's a long saga. It's actually a really good read, those several chapters, because you get to see back and forth David um, running back and forth all around Judea. He even goes into the enemy territory um, in the land of the Philistines and tries to hide there. The first time, it doesn't work, and we saw that in our first couple weeks. Remember, he tries to hide um, in the town of Gath, which was a really bad idea because Goliath, who he killed, was from Gath. So, of course, he gets there, and they're like, we know who you are. We're going to get you. Um, so he has to run. And we saw a couple of psalms about that. One of the themes, um, well, first of all, we're going to set up and find out what is this psalm about and why, where, what is the setting for this psalm. But beforehand, I just want to address this, um, this sense of the imprecations within the psalms. Does anybody remember who's been tracking what that word means that we see all throughout the psalms? And I'll give you a hint. It's usually the verses that we skip when we read the lectionary, the Psalms in the lectionary. The, the, the vicious part. The vicious part. Dash their heads, right? Or, you know, whatever it is, whatever. It, we do skip right over it because we don't know what to do with it. Well, I'd like to suggest that, um, and this, I'll, I keep using this example, so forgive me if you've heard it. I know a couple of you have heard it about three times. You could probably tell it for me. But I had this insight into the imprecations. So the imprecations are these curses called down upon the enemies of the psalmist saying lord do to them what they're trying to do to me would you let them experience the consequences of their actions they're sinning against me they're trying and they're trying to kill me and with david saul really was trying to kill him so you see he's asking the lord to defend him and we think about that and we think well that's a terrible prayer to pray about someone and even last week our our gospel lesson was love your enemies. Jesus telling us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Well, that is essentially what David is doing. He's praying for those who persecute him, and he's praying that um, that that the Lord would get them, like that the Lord would get them, and the reason why he's praying that the Lord would get them was so that he doesn't feel like he has to. He's refraining from taking revenge in his own hands. So I had this experience um, last month where I was renting a car in Boston, and I, again, I've told it many times, so forgive me if you've heard it, but I was there, I had, you know, I get very anxious, oh yeah, no, go for it. I got very anxious surrounding, you know, the logistics of traveling, I've got this bag, and I'm going to go get the rental car, and you get into the rental car, there are two different places you go to, and apparently at Logan Airport, it's very complicated, you have to take a shuttle bus, then you have to go to one desk, and then another desk, and then a guy brings the car to you, and you have to inspect the car, and you have to sign the contract, and there are all these places where you, you know, initial and then sign, and I'm trying to orient myself around the car and not forget any of my baggage, and he starts to tell me, ask me what I want to do about the gas tank. Do I want to return it empty or full? And he's explaining to me, and I'm only listening halfway, that if I want to return it empty, then they'll charge me 350 a tank. And if I want to return it full, then the gas station right outside the airport is, would charge me 370 a, a, a gallon. So 350 a gallon versus 370 a gallon. And my very frugal mind is trying to do the math and saying, well, I think it's better if I return it empty. So, of course, I quickly said, yes, I'll take it empty. But then I forgot that um, the airport gas stations are always way more expensive than anywhere else. So, of course, I get out into the city of Boston, which is a beast to drive in, and I'm driving, and I see 320 
a gallon for gas, and I've been had, and I hate that, and I'm so mad, and I'm driving, and it's dangerous because I'm driving in the streets of Boston, well, angry, and I was so frustrated, and then I started, I'd been remembering Psalms because I've been studying it for a while, and I, I just started praying. All right, Lord, if they have cheated me, they're trying to cheat me, then Lord, bring it back upon them. Let them be uh, experience the consequences, the just consequences for their cheating, you know. And that actually caused my blood pressure to lower. Just praying that prayer and putting it in God's hands and not worrying about it, not trying to get, you know, spinning my wheels about it, actually allowed me to just calm down and leave it and just keep going on with whatever happened. It's okay. Um, and so I suggest to you that that is in fact what David does when he's saying, "Oh Lord, get them." He's putting that anxiety and that um, that frustration at being wronged into God's hands. And that's really the first step towards loving our enemies is, is saying, I'm not going to get back. I'm going to just put this in God's hands and trust in him. Any questions? Uh, yes, sir. <coughs> if Saul tried to kill David ten times and he didn't, no, I think the scripture is so clear. It says in chapter 15 that the Lord departed from Saul. His spirit, his protecting, preserving, and empowering spirit upon him as the anointed one of the Lord, as the anointed and chosen king, left Saul. And then when David's anointed in the next chapter, it says the spirit of the Lord from that point on rushed upon him. And so you get the sense that, that the favor of the Lord, the Lord has clearly chosen David over Saul. And David is safe and secure because of that, and Saul cannot succeed in his plans. Does that make sense? I was just trying to translate it into today's. Oh, yeah, please, sir. Well, you could wonder who's keeping somebody from doing something. Yeah, absolutely. And if he kept doing it so many times, he might give up. Right, right. It might be so discouraging. And I think we're getting to this point where David is just getting discouraged. It's been 17 chapters, and he's had so many different encounters and episodes with Saul, where Saul says, oh, I won't kill you. And then he changes his mind, and he's like, I'm going to get you. And he starts to throw spears at him. He tries to, um, the people where David is hiding out, turn him into Saul. Um, it's just a long saga of David running and fleeing from Saul. And so, and I'll apply it in a moment because for us, we might not always have a very clear enemy. We might. I mean, there might be someone at work that just doesn't like you and is going to try to thwart you at every end. And that's very frustrating. Or there might be, you know, someone in your family that really wronged you a long time ago. And it just, it's hard to forget, even if you've worked on forgiving them. There is that sense in which we can feel beaten down. But I would say, and um, this I think is always true in the Psalms, that the ultimate enemy for us as human beings, and especially as Christians, is God's ultimate enemy. And who is God's ultimate enemy but the evil one? And so there's this sense in which you know, when we feel thwarted, even when we feel discouraged by thoughts that enter in, you know, those thoughts that get you thinking and your wheels are spinning and you're trying to just say, no, I'm not going to think that, I'm, that's going to bring me down. But those very often are not from our good Lord. Those are very often from the evil one. And the thing to do is not to focus on that and focus on where they're coming from, but rather to focus on the Lord and say, okay, Lord, deliver me. 
deliver me out of this situation in which I find myself. And that's what we hear in this psalm, in Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is one of those psalms of deliverance, a psalm of testimony, giving thanks to God for the deliverance that he's worked in the psalmist's life. So we're going to look at it, and you'll be thankful. We're not going to read the whole thing, because even though we've done that in the past, because this is one of the three longest psalms in Scripture, it's 50 verses long, which is pretty incredible. Um, and so we'll just take, kind of take it off in bite-sized pieces and look at a couple verses at a time. And then I'll tell you how, what does this have to do for us today as Christians. So we're going to look first at the title. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. And this will be on the second side of your sheet. A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this, of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David said, and then he goes on to start saying it. So the, do you see how in the title, though, in our other title, in the titles for the other psalms we've looked at, it said very specifically of David when David was fleeing from Saul and he hit, and he hid in the cave or he pretended to be mad in Gath, or he pretended this, or he did that. Very specific events in David's life that we can kind of track and see what they, what they refer to. Well, this one is very general. He addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So how can this psalm be about all of his enemies and about Saul? Well, I'd like to propose to you one answer that makes sense to me. This is, oddly enough, it's the only psalm that's included in its, practically in its entirety somewhere else. And it's included in 2 Samuel. As it records the events of David's life, um, in that historical book, it, it records this whole psalm right there at the very end of David's life. So in 2 Samuel, this whole psalm is there. It's right before the end of his life, and it's saying that this was a psalm. It appears as though this psalm was something that David wrote or had written, but definitely something that he sang, and that he sang repeatedly on the many times when the Lord delivered him. David was always going to battle, not just when he was waiting to inherit the, king sh the kingship and the kingdom, but once he was king, he had to defend Jerusalem and Israel from um, the peoples around them. And so there were many more battles during his, um, during his reign. And so it makes sense that, at the, that he might have composed this very early in his reign, and I do think it refers to that ultimate deliverance that the Lord worked for him from the hands of Saul, and we're going to look specifically at that event. But it makes sense that he would then, if he had already had it composed, he would then keep singing it every time he was delivered. And that if that was the psalm that characterized him the most, that would be the psalm that they would record at the end of his life and say, he wrote this song and he sang it a lot because it was true. Um, so any questions about that before we move on to the actual text? Let's read together the first three verses. We'll just read them in unison. I know we've done it call and response in the past, but let's just read all three um, in unison. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. This is a pattern that we see all throughout the Psalms, 
there's this sense of praise and thanksgiving that David offers to the Lord as he remembers and celebrates his deliverance. And his deliverance happened, first of all, because God is faithful and he's strong. And we see all these language, the language of strength all throughout these first three verses. My strength, my rock, my fortress, my rock, my refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, and of course, my deliverer. The Lord is strong, he's powerful, and he, um, there is this sense too in that steadiness. All of those images of strength convey steadiness. And there's all throughout the Old Testament we see, um, and it's carried over into the New as well, that idea of God's hesed, that Hebrew word for his steadfast love, his covenantal love that endures forever, even in the midst of the unfaithfulness of his people. There is that steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever, and that steadfast love of God is like a rock. So not only is he strong and powerful, he's merciful and um, loving. And so in the midst of these dire circumstances, and if you look at verse 4 and verse 5, we hear that there, um, there's death involved. He's fearing his death and destruction. He's um, close to death. He might die. And in his distress, he calls. And so that's where we also get it in verse 3. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. That there is that, um, that need to call. If we don't know our need, then how can God come and save us? If we don't cry out to him in the midst of our distress, how can we be ready to see the help that he is always ready to give us? Um, so there's that, that, uh, that argument right there for prayer um, in the midst of our overwhelming uh, situations, whatever that might be in our personal life. Uh, the, the Psalms are so wonderful for that continually through and through that idea of calling upon the Lord and he intervenes on our behalf. And so we're about to see how the Lord intervenes on David's behalf. And so when we go to verse 7, um, let's, let's read at least um, verses 7 through 12. And let's do it alternating. I'll do 7 and you do the even verses and then I'll pick up the odd verses again. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. And out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Isn't that amazing, that language? What an intervention. What, um, there's obviously a storm is mentioned here. Do you see all the words that point to a storm? What do you see? What, does the lang what language do you see? I, I see? I see an earthquake. The earth reeled and rocked. Yeah, it does sound like a volcano in the middle. Smoke and fire, glowing coals flame forth from him. And then later on in verse 13, it says, coals of fire like raining down along with hail. Um, we see him coming down in verse 9. He bowed the heavens and came down. There's darkness. Think of how dark it gets um, just before a storm. You know the storm's coming, and then you sort of, there's that wonderful um, suspense as you wait for it to break. And the sense of the cherubim, too, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But there's this, the, well, the cherubim, always you see the cherubim around 
the Lord when it's de depicting the Lord's intense holiness. The cherubim are there to defend his holiness um, and to defend other people from um, the perfection of his holiness. So you see in this passage, it, does it remind you of anything in scripture, of anywhere else that God has acted and intervened on behalf of his people? It's okay if it doesn't. I'm fishing. Yeah, in Daniel. Yeah, absolutely. And Daniel wrote probably after this psalm. So he's probably, he, you wonder, is his vision characterized by this? Even Ezekiel probably wrote after this psalm. And in Ezekiel 1, you see the chariots of fire of the Lord. It's really incredible. So what this, there's absolutely a, a reference to the Exodus, a reference to the parting of the waters, a reference to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the darkness and the light, the smoke, the thunder and lightning. And of course, at Mount Sinai, there was an earthquake. Um, the Lord came down on the mountain and the earth qu qu quaked. I wanted to say quoke, that, that wouldn't work. Um, but so you see that this is a depiction of a theophany, which is a theological term for saying a vision of the Lord. The Lord God made manifest in all of his sovereignty and in all of his power. He is sovereign over all creation, so much so that all of these mighty and powerful forces within nature that often cause us great fear, um, even those are under his control. Even those, um, are, you know, listen to him and obey him. I mean, I think even now what's going on in the world, but even that horrible typhoon out um, in the east, the Lord is even in control of that, um, that kind of storm. And we have to ask, Lord, why do things like that happen when you're in control of it? I was um, once uh, rowing on a, um, there's a place that I go to on Cape Cod, and you have to row in a rowboat to get over to the island, and it's very old school. I mean, it's good. Not only do you have to row, you have to, you have to drag the boat out into the bay, and if it's low tide, then you can be guaranteed that your feet will sink, I kid you not, a foot down in smelly black mud. It's lots of fun. The best is to go in the summertime when there are seven plagues. Deer flies, green flies, ticks, mosquitoes, gnats, all, all sorts of biting insects, just to make your life fun. So anyway, my, my first cousin and I, when we're good friends, and we had rowed over to the island in the morning, and we had planned to do all sorts of wonderful things on the island, to walk and to um, enjoy the sunshine and just do all sorts of wonderful things. And as the day began to come to a close, we noticed that there were clouds gathering, dark clouds dark thunder clouds and we realized oh no we have to row back across the island because we can't we don't want to get stranded here there will be no dinner and so we <laughs> of course the belly um but so we're running down to the shore trying to get in the boat and we're trying to hurry and she's a better rower than i so she just she was going to row and we're sitting in this metal boat on the water when the lightning starts striking and I have never been so terrified in my life. I mean, I just thought, I love a storm. I love a storm when I'm in the safety of my own porch and I can look out and enjoy the wind. Wow, look at that, isn't God awesome? I do not wanna be in a metal boat on the water when the lightning's striking. And so, of course, my, my sweet cousin, her father's an electrician, and I was like, Sarah, are we gonna die out here? Is this, are we in real danger? Because I, my heart was telling me that we were. 
And she said, no, we're, we're fine. And she's rowing really fast. And I thought, you're lying. You're trying to make me feel better. We're not fine. So I just remember that utmost fear and that anxiety uh, in the midst of that awesomeness of that incredible storm in the middle of the water on a metal boat. And that awe, that is akin and analogous to the awe that we feel in God's presence because we are fallen and sinful human beings. And in his glorious presence, who will save us? And that's why you see the, the, um, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6. He has this vision of God in heaven, the holy of holies, not the holy of holies in the temple, but the one in heaven that the one in the temple mimics. And he falls down on his face and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And the angel takes a coal from the, from the altar and comes and touches his lips. And there's that sense of God's awesomeness. Um, his sovereignty and his utmost holiness that cause us rightfully, causes us rightfully to fear and to tremble in the midst of his power. So God comes down to intervene. Look out to David's enemies, right? If God is coming down to intervene. Well, the funny thing is, during all of this life of David, we never saw a great big storm. There, there was no, there's, if you can read all of Samuel, there is no great big storm. And so how is it that the Lord is delivering David from Samuel's hand at this time? How is it? What episode is he talking about? And, um, and I'll get to that in a minute, but it's a curious thing. What is this storm and what does it represent? And what is the salvation that the Lord is working on behalf of David? Um, so I just want to say real, real quick, I'm going to skip verses 20 through 24 and verse 25. And if we have time at the end, we'll look at them. But um, so sorry. But those are, those are really the hard ones. They're really hard verses because um, it says that um, David is righteous and we know he's not righteous. And then it says that um, God shows himself to be merciful with those who are merciful and, um, and torturous to those who are cruel. It's very interesting wording. We can look at that at the end. Stick around. Um, <laughs> so God intervenes on behalf of David. He intervenes, and this strange thing is that the language, and the language in verse, um, let's see, which language is it? It's, um, he rode on a cherubim and flew, oh, in verse 9, he bowed the heavens and came down. And all throughout this psalm, there's this amazing difference between height and depth. And if I haven't said it before to you, I'm spatial, and by that I mean not special, although maybe I'm special in some kind of way, but I'm spatial, and direction means a lot to me, or it, 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 it sinks in for me. God comes down in order to bring down the proud man, the man of violence, who is uh, oppressing the humble psalmist. And the word for humble that's used in this to talk about the humble people of the Lord is lowly. It's not humi about humility, it's about actual position. David has nothing. He has no one to defend him. He has no earthly resources. And at the very end, right as, um, right as Saul's life is about to be taken, David hits a very low point. And I'm looking here at 1 Samuel in chapter 30, David has been hiding out in this Philistine town of Ziklag that they gave him. Um, the Philistines gave him this town, and he's been going out from Ziklag, and he's been um, fighting all of these non-Israelite nations and plundering them and, and wiping them out, and no one knows the difference. And he tells his Philistine friends, 
well, I'm raiding at the Israelite towns. And so they think that he is going to be in big trouble if he ever tries to go back home. They think it's great. And there's this horrible low, low point in his life because while he and his men have been out on a raid, um, their town has been raided in revenge. And the, all, of their, all of their possessions, their families, their wives have been abducted and stolen. And so he's at this very low point. He, um, in his bravado, he has made, he's left his flank open and he, he's been exposed. And now um, his, and his men even revolt and rebel against him, want to kill him because of the danger that he's put their families in. So David is at this very, very low point. And what happens but God intervenes on his behalf. And the Philistines are fighting the Israelites. And it says, in chapter 31, what happens is that um, the Philistines, it says in chapter 31, verse 2, and I didn't put it down there, so I'm sorry. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and they slew Jonathan and the other sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard upon Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to the armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And this is a sad moment for the people of Israel. But the truth of it is that this is deliverance for David. As long as Saul was alive, he would pursue David and keep trying to kill him. And so David did nothing. David did not touch the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul was his enemy and Saul was pursuing to try, him to try to kill him, twice we see in 1 Samuel that David had the opportunity to fight back. David had the opportunity to kill Saul and prevent him from continuing to try to pursue and kill him. And David was merciful to his sworn enemy. He was merciful because he feared the Lord, and he knew that Saul had at one point been the Lord's anointed. And so even though Saul is a man of violence, and that's a word, a phrase used at the very end of this psalm to describe him in verse 48, the, the man of violence um, is thwarted, and David did not raise a finger to do it. The Lord fought for David. And so David interprets this deliverance of the Lord in his fighting for David. David did nothing, but the Lord intervened powerfully and mightily. And so it could be said that in the spiritual realm, God came down and delivered David. He didn't lift a hand to fight against Saul. He even spared him, and he was a man of peace. And um, the Lord intervened. So David did nothing except pray as he prayed in those first few verses and asked for the Lord's deliverance. Um, and so, sorry, we've got to, oh no, we don't, we have a little more time. But I do just want to say that um, for us, what does this mean for us? We don't all, all of us, again, we don't all have people coming after us to kill us. Um, and yet, um, we, we find ourselves in the midst of our own very specific dire circumstances at times, whether we're fighting something that's impersonal, like sickness or anxiety or depression or um, anything like that. There's sometimes, too, career-wise where you might feel, especially if you're looking for a job or you're underemployed, there's that feeling of, will the door ever open? Will What is the thing that I'm supposed to do? God, will you open a door? And you, you know, sometimes the natural circumstances feel in, in, inherently spiritual. And they're, that's right, because they are. 
the way that we are rescued is when we know our need for for our lord when we cry out like david cried out and we ask for help and he is mighty to save and so this whole psalm what john calvin says about this psalm and in relation to the title in particular john calvin says this psalm is more about jesus christ than it is about david because jesus is the truly blameless one um, and it is in and through him that God has come down. God bowed the heavens. He came down in glory and majesty. And he's delivered us from all our fears, from all our foes. Even though we don't see it played out entirely yet in this world, we're free. We're forgiven from our sins. And then that's like this epicenter that goes out. Every other part of our life will one day be restored because of what Jesus has done. And so Jesus truly is great David's greater son. And um, through him, we have that forgiveness of sins. And because of the forgiveness of sins, we're delivered from the evil one, the ultimate enemy, um, the one who is um, who would try to thwart the saints of God. Um, and so, again, in the midst of whatever trial um, or discomfort even, whatever frustration, whether it's at your, your own sins or your own habits or someone else's, um, wherever you're beating your head against the wall, uh, the way out is only through it and in praying and asking for the Lord's deliverance. He is mighty to save. So let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your, um, your glory, your glorious might and that majesty that you made manifest that David saw so long ago and that we see in your intervention in our world through Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that this week, even today, we ask that you would intervene powerfully and mightily, that you would save us um, from whatever it is that is plaguing us right now in this very moment, that you would shield us, that you would defend us, that you would deliver us, we ask in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, what, what do you want? Do you want me to go back? Uh, verse 10. Verse 10. Yeah, he was on the yes. If you were teaching an eight year old Sunday school class or making a movie, how would you? I know, do that's it? good. That's a really good question. Thank you. Um, I don't, I think that, well, one of the things that I do think this is a precursor to the chariots that Ezekiel sees. I mean, how could you imagine God riding on a a steed. Someone said, one of the commentators said it's like he's on a raptor and he swoops down like on a great hawk or a, um, I was looking in the sky and I'm like, look, it's a hawk. And my parents who are bird watchers will say, no, that's a buzzard. But um, so <laughs> I doubt the Lord was flying on a buzzard, but you know, some kind of great noble bird. Uh, that, so it's either that or it's a soaring flying chariot, just like Ezekiel sees. So any other questions? Yeah. I mean, yeah. How, tell me. Well, to, 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 you can't quite help but take literal and then kind of waver a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm always a little bit. I'm, I don't want to go too far with my imagination. Right. But I, I believe that 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 is something that's given too. Yeah. To to have the joy of thinking the way you enjoy. Trying to pick the words. Well, okay, so the question is, did did David really see this? 
as he was expecting God to deliver him? I don't know. I don't think he needs to have actually seen it. I mean, I think there are, you know, our spiritual sight is different than what's going on in the natural. And I, I do think he's saying whatever happened, uh, he, he was not in charge of what happened as far as his deliver, deliverance. God was in charge, and he intervened powerfully. I mean, he intervened so that um, Saul wasn't even killed by any other person. He wasn't defeated by um, the Philistines. And the honor culture then was so great that if he had been, it would have been such a shame upon the Israelites as well. But, I mean, then his suicide is shame just upon him, really. Yes, so, My image is, I would, um, I would think without whatever my imagination can view, mm -hmm. that it would be spectacular. Oh, incredible. Be, yeah. To take all. Mm -hmm. Well, there is this sense, and Theophany has this sense of a lifting of the veil to see with spiritual eyes what's going on in the world. And that's what you see in Daniel when he has these visions of the Lord. You know, Isaiah has that vision of heaven. Ezekiel has the vision of the Lord, a very similar vision of the Lord moving and coming down and moving in justice to, um, well, for Ezekiel, he sees the spirit of the Lord lifting up and departing, actually, and it's very depressing. But um, but so there's sense, this sense of God on the move. You know, he's in heaven on his throne and is, is there, and yet he has this movable throne that you see throughout Scripture, which is kind of cool. He's gonna, He's coming, you know, and there's that sense in which He's coming, and he has come in Jesus Christ, and he's coming back. And so Revelation has that spiritual sight as well. And it's hard to know what's literal and what's figurative, but we know he's coming. And look out. It's going to be as awesome as that storm on that metal boat. And yet we'll be safe. We'll have rubber tires. <laughs> You're fine in a car, right? <laughs> well, go in peace. <laughs> or stay if you have another question.